Welcome to the Climate Report on WFMP LP 106.5 FM Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are in episode number 329. Today's topic is food prices and climate. We'll be talking about rising food prices and what we can do about them, and just as important, how not to be fooled by the reportage related to rising food prices. I've got a handy-dandy article from the New York Times, and we're going to talk about that and critique it. Then we'll talk about how our food system really works. Then we'll talk about alternatives and solutions to our food system and, and what we can do. So the New York Times article is entitled, Ukraine War Threatens to Cause a Global Food Crisis. It's from March 20th, 2022 by Jack Nikas, N-I-C-A-S. It says the war in Ukraine has delivered a shock to global energy markets. Now the planet is facing a deeper crisis, a shortage of food. A critical portion of the world's wheat, corn, and barley is trapped in Russia and Ukraine because of the war, while an even larger portion of the world's fertilizers is stuck in Russia and Belarus. The result is that global food and fertilizer prices are soaring. So the article goes on to talk about why food prices are soaring, how this relates to the war in Ukraine, talks about how food is typically shipped all over the world from different countries, and different countries are wheeling and dealing, baby in lots and lots of food that gets shipped lots and lots of miles. A related New York Times article by Anna Swanson from February 2nd says that price increases have included grains, vegetable oil, butter, pasta, beef, and coffee. So here's my critique of this article. Everything it talks about as food are really commodities, and commodities don't make great food. Commodities tend to be empty calories. They tend to be shipped from long distances away. They tend to be raised with pesticides and lots and lots of tillage and, uh, and chemical fertilizers. They tend to be owned and controlled by big companies that are often monopolies and are often lobbying Congress for special favors. The food tends to be low nutrition and high toxicity, all of which we could change if we were to switch to a system where we're getting more, if not most, of our food locally. If only a fraction of people grew food, then we could get most of our food locally and then we would be free from these international markets controlled by monopolies where they deliver to us low-value, low-nutrition, high-toxicity food where the prices can go up on a whim because the shipping lanes are blocked or because energy prices are going up and because 
It takes a lot of energy to do food the way we do food these days. The food that we have, Vandana Shiva calls it anti-food. You know, when, you, when you're growing corn in Iowa and the purpose of the corn is to make ethanol, that's not food. When you're growing corn in Iowa to feed animals in concentrated animal feeding operations, that corn is not, not only is it not people food, but you shouldn't be feeding corn to cattle because cattle did not evolve to eat corn. Cattle evolved to eat grass, and we could be grass feeding our cattle, but we don't because of cheap oil and because of farm subsidies. So Vandana Shiva calls that anti-food. Even the animals are not being fed nutritious food. Humans are not being fed nutritious food and animals are not being fed nutritious food. So it doesn't have to be that way. So another critique of the article is that these commodities are being traded on international markets. They come a long way. They're bred for durability and shelf life, not taste or nutrition. Whereas if we got more of our food locally, we would have food that doesn't have to travel thousands of miles. The average bite of food travels 1,500 miles. And it travels 1,500 miles because we're buying it at the supermarket and the supermarket or the restaurant and the supermarket and the restaurant have every reason to get their food in a standardized process that involves shipping it in for many, many, many many, many, many miles away. Speaking of which, my third critique of this article is that commodities make us vulnerable to long supply chains. So when energy prices go up, then our food prices go up and the food prices become less available to the most vulnerable people. So the most vulnerable people, the poorest people in the world, are the ones that suffer the most under our current food system. And somebody might say, Hart, it's cheaper to make food this way. And my response is, cheaper for whom? It's not cheaper for the people who pay the real price of cheap food. Who pays the high price of cheap food? The environment does. The climate does, our bodies do in the form of low nutrition, our bodies do in the form of high toxicity. We, our local economies, pay the high cost of cheap food because labor gets cheated and because small landowners get cheated and because we continue to enrich these monopolies who buy our Congress and rig the laws in their favor. Among other things, they rig the system so that small business has a hard way to go. So let's critique the media outlets that bring us this information. So we're reading an article from the New York Times, but it could be from any media, any commercial media outlet. Let's talk about how the media works so that we will understand why we cannot trust everything or even half of what we read 
in the New York Times. It's factual, but it's supporting a false and misleading narrative, and here's why. I mean, the misleading narrative is that, hey, this is the best we can do. We have this food system, and we couldn't control Russia going in to invade Ukraine, and we can't control the fact that we're shipping food from halfway around the world or halfway across the country. That's just the way it is, and things happen. So let's talk about how the media really works. Now understand that commercial media outlets are not a public service. service. They're not a charity. They don't exist to tell you the truth. They exist to make money for their shareholders. And to make money for their shareholders, they have to pay attention to where they get their revenue. You don't bite the hand that feeds you. So who feeds the commercial media outlets? And the answer is their sponsors. If it's cable news, it's ads on cable news. If it's a newspaper, it's ads on the newspaper. And it's also subscribers to a small extent, but subscribers have always been a relatively minor part of the revenue stream. But they do need to tell the subscribers a story that the subscribers like to consume that's not too damaging to the people that they should be investigating, which is these big companies that control the food system, the fossil fuel companies, etc. But commercial media outlets are not a charity. They're not a public service. They don't exist to tell you the truth. They're businesses. They exist to make a profit. And to do that, they have to continue to get money from their sponsors. So who are we talking about? What kinds of companies are we talking about when we talk about the sponsors of commercial media? We're talking about fossil fuel companies, including multinational oil and gas companies, not least of all Saudi Arabia, but also, you know, whatever Wall Street Corporation or bank owns Canadian tar sands and just, you know, drilling operations all around the world. Uh, domestic gas, gas companies have an incentive to at least be part of a trade group that buys ads in commercial media. Pipeline builders, hey, that's big business. Shippers, we're shipping a, a lot of natural gas, liquid natural gas to Europe now because Europe can't get its natural gas from Russia, so we're shipping a lot of natural gas to Europe. So who has an incentive to either pay for the sponsorship or be part of a trade group that pays for the sponsorship? It's anybody that is that stands to gain from drilling the oil or transporting the oil via pipeline, transporting the oil via ships, the people that build ships to transport the oil and the gas, and not least of all, drum roll, fracking companies. Anybody that stands to gain from fracking has incentive to at least be part of a trade group that is buying ads and commercial media. That way, the commercial media will not investigate them, will not expose what they're doing that's corrupt, will not expose 
what they're doing that's bad for the environment, will not expose what they're doing that's bad for consumers, etc. So who else stands to gain from being part of a trade group that buys the commercial media and therefore controls the, the narrative? Well, shipping conglomerates, commodities dealers, like the big banks are commodities dealers, and the big banks are also lenders. Big banks lend a lot of money for drilling and lend a lot of money for pipelines. Quite often, the drilling and the pipelines are guaranteed by, by are, are, the loans are guaranteed by the federal government. So in a sense, your tax dollars go to provide a guarantee for the loans that go to the people that are drilling, the people that are building pipelines, etc. And if you stand against that, you're a terrorist. I'm not lying. You're a terrorist if you stand against pipelines, etc. These big companies have the wherewithal to criminalize the protest, but that's another conversation. So who else stands to gain by buying, sponsor, you know, sponsoring ads in commercial media? Well, it includes big food. So big food, do you think big food doesn't stand to gain from this narrative? Big food loves it when you and I do not know the difference about the food system we have versus the food system that we could have. So big food includes who? Well, it's the agribusiness corporations, but it's also the restaurant corporations, including fast food, full service, vending. Uh, it includes Aramark or that, you know, companies like that, that provide foods to prisons and, and uh, school cafeterias. I'm just saying that they have something to gain by controlling the narrative and the way they control the narrative is buying ads on commercial media. Who else? Grocery corporations stand to gain from that. Grocery corporations got a good racket going on. Grocery corporations do not want you to know how much better your health would be or your local economy would be if we got most of our food locally. They do not want you to know that. They do not want you to know how toxic is the food that they sell. They do not want you to know how toxic are the processes that grow our crops. They do not want you to know how toxic it is the way that we grow meat. They're better off if you don't know any of that. They're better off if you don't know that we subsidize the price of corn. And when we do that, we make it easy for the food corporations to buy stuff cheap, which widens their profit margin. If you're just joining us, this is The Climate Report on WFMP LP 106.5 Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 329. Today's topic is food prices and climate. We're talking about a New York Times article that talks about how food prices are going up because of the war in Ukraine. And I'm here to tell you that although the facts, no doubt, are probably correct in this article, it's a false narrative because they're acting like this food system that we have is inevitable. They're acting like we, you know, you, we couldn't possibly grow our food locally. I mean, don't be an idealist. But in fact, we could grow our food locally and more and more of that is happening. And that is the solution to most 
of the problems that we're talking about here. So who else stands to gain by controlling the narrative about our food system and how it works? And who else gains from not wanting us to know how toxic our food is or how easily and manageable it would be to grow most of our food locally. Well, agribusiness corporations don't want you to know that. So this article in the New York Times said, oh no, fertilizer prices are going up. Yeah, like we need chemical fertilizers, but we really don't need chemical fertilizers. There's lots of ways to make the soil more fertile without chemical fertilizers. In fact, chemical fertilizers destroy the fertility of the, the soil. They destroy the ability of the plant to kickstart its own ecosystem that delivers nutrients to the plant. Nutrients that would make the plant more nutritious and nutrients that would make the plant more resilient. The agribusiness corporations that sell the fertilizers do not want you to know any of that. The agribusiness corporations sell pesticides, don't want you to know that we could do a whole lot of good growing without pesticides, but we need biologically diverse farms to do that. Because biological diversity is pest control. If you have a pest outbreak, you probably don't have enough biological diversity. You know, maybe you need some more ladybugs, but you know, the last thing you want to do is to kill your insects you know if you have mosquito spray or then that's going to kill all insects and the pesticide companies don't want you to know that farm equipment companies don't want you to know that we could grow a whole lot of food without heavy equipment they don't want you to know that a lot of good farming can happen with equipment that is like 30 40 50 years out of date. Or, hey, we could stop consuming so many calories with grains like corn, soy, I mean annuals like corn, soy, wheat, oats, rice, barley. It's okay to have some of that, but maybe a third of our calories can come from those annual crops and two-thirds can come from more perennials grown in biologically diverse farming environments. So who else benefits by controlling the narrative? And that is the people that own or control or benefit from these massive plantations where agricultural crops are grown both at home and abroad. The big multinational conglomerates that grow you know, our food, so-called food, I mean, you know, you've, you've got palm oil plantation, food and fiber. You've got palm oil plantations, you've got cotton plantations, you've got apple plantations, you've got, you know, plantations that have rice, corn, soy, wheat. The people that have those big operations at the expense of the consumer and at the expense of the small producers, they benefit from at least being part of a trade group that sponsors add time in the media so that they are not investigated by the commercial media. So we've talked about all the different types of companies that have incentive 
to deliver a false narrative because what they're doing is nefarious, it's bad for the environment, it's bad for the consumer, it's bad for producers. It includes fossil fuel companies, big ag companies, big food companies, shipping conglomerates, and includes um, you know, agribusiness corporations, fertilizer companies, pesticide companies, etc. All these big companies making massive amounts of money, they have a reason for you to not know the truth really about what's going on. And, and yet this article in the New York Times talks about all of this whole food system as if it's inevitable. You know, shucks, it's just inevitable that this, you know, that Russia should invade Ukraine. It's inevitable that food, that energy prices should go up as a result. And it's inevitable that food prices should go up. And it's even inevitable that the world's most vulnerable people should experience greater rates of starvation because of this crisis that we could not control. Well, actually, we have set ourselves up for failure, and we have set ourselves up to eat massive amounts of toxic food. So contrary to the article, what is, what, what is not inevitable? Inevitable means unavoidable. So it's not inevitable that we should get the bulk of our food from other countries. It's not inevitable that we should be shipping our food from thousands of miles away because we can have much more of our food locally. It's not inevitable that we're dependent upon a long chain of middlemen because we could get our food from a very short chain that is very local. We can even buy food direct from our local farmers. And if you have, if you have any extra time or any extra money, one of the best uses of your extra time and extra money, in my view, is to buy local food and buy good food. Not all good food is local, but we can buy a great deal of our food locally. What else is not inevitable? It's not inevitable that we should be dependent on huge for-profit corporations. It's not inevitable that we should be vulnerable to big banks and international finance capital for the food that we eat. It's not inevitable that we should be vulnerable to monopolies. It's not inevitable that we should be buying our food from companies that are buying our elected leaders and preventing us from having a food system that's healthy for the consumers and the producers. So let's talk specifically about farming methods that are prevalent, and then what are the alternatives to these? So the prevalent farming methods, at the risk of oversimplification, the prevalent farming methods are bad, and the alternatives I'm going to suggest are feasible and doable and good for the environment, for our health, etc. So the vast majority of crops worldwide are grown with tillage. Tillage is bad because it destroys the structure of the soil. It destroys the health of the soil. Living soil is healthy. Healthy soil is living soil. If it's not living soil, it's dead, and, and dead soil cannot, cannot it's, it's not good for the plants. It's not good for the health and resilience of the plants, and it's not good for the nutritional value of the plants. So instead of tillage, we could be growing most of our food through no-till methods. The vast majority of crops in the world are grown with fertilizers, chemical fertilizers. These chemical fertilizers are made with lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of natural gas. 
They're made from fossil fuels. It's an energy intensive process. It's called the Haber-Bosch process. It was invented to fix nitrogen, uh, to make fertilizers, and then they used it to make bombs, and they made lots and lots of bombs from it. And then they decided to convert the factories back into fertilizer factories. It need not be that way. We can make the soil fertile with compost. We can make the soil fertile with grazing animals. We can make the soil fertile with biologically diverse cover crops. We can make the soil fertile by attending to Gabe Brown's five principles of soil health. Yeah, and in the long run, fertility comes from natural processes, from healthy soil, from living soils. The vast majority of crops worldwide are made with, grown with, chemical pesticides, including insecticides, which kill insects, herbicides, which kill plants, and fungicides, which kill fungus. If you and I knew, if, if people knew how vital fungus is to healthy plants and resilient farms and resilient ecosystems, we would not tolerate the use of fungicides, let alone the fact they're toxic. They make the productivity of the farm go down. The only ones that benefit are the companies that sell this toxic crap. So insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, side on the end means kill. So we're killing insects, killing plants, killing fungus, and we're degrading the ecosystem. We need biological diversity, and we're making war on biological diversity with insecticides, herbicides, and fungicides, which are toxic to humans, toxic to wildlife, toxic to soil health, bad for the quality of our air and our water, and bad for the climate. Lastly, monocultures. Uh, it, 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 lastly, meaning the last of the five or six things that we're comparing what we do versus what we could do. We do monocultures. Corn as far as the eye can see, wheat as far as the eye can see, soybeans as far as the eye can see. This is bad for nature. It's bad for the health of our crops, uh, bad for the health of the plants that we have to eat. All that crap gets subsidized so that the sellers can buy cheap uh, and widen their profit margin at taxpayer expense. But if you have a monoculture, it's feast, uh, a feast for the pests, and then you have to use insecticides to kill the pests. It's, it's just a mess. Monocultures are hostile to nature, but that's how we grow most of our so-called food. So what can we do about this? So the main thing I want you to do is eat local, get to know local farmers. You know, all of these long distances over which food has to be transported, that will go away insofar as we buy food that is made locally. And somebody might say, well, not everybody can do that. Not everybody can afford that. And there's some truth in that. But if you're within the sound of my voice, you probably have some discretionary income. And I'm asking you to spend a little more on good food. And then, you know, I know people that are growing food to give away at food pantries. The more we commit 
to local food, the more it's going to be available and accessible to people, irrespective of whether they can afford it. So I want you to eat local. I want you to grow something. Maybe it's a pepper plant or a tomato plant or onions, or maybe it's parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Maybe it's a fruit tree like apples or blueberry or serviceberry. I want you to get to know local farmers, buy at farmers markets, buy through community-supported agriculture. And if we do all this, or even some of it, it'll be good for our local economy, good for our water quality, good for our soils, good for our air, good for our climate, good for your health, and good for your spirits. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much for joining me. Have a wonderful day.